According to data by the FBI, nearly 40% of missing people are people of color, despite people of color only making up about 13% of the population. But the Columbia Journalism Review created a tool that calculates the number of stories your disappearance would net based on demographics and found that missing black people only account for 13% of news stories, while missing white people were featured in 70% of news stories. So before we get into today's story, I want to share with you the story of Devin Sequoia Cooper. Devin Sequoia Cooper is a black woman who goes by the name Sequoia. She's 35 years old, 5'5", and about 145 pounds. She was last seen wearing black lemonade braids, which is a term used to describe braids that basically go to one side of your head, a black and white summer dress, and black and white baby fat sandals. She was last seen leaving her residence in the north side of Columbus, Ohio, at about 11.30 p.m. on August 31st of 2021. She was going to a corner store and never returned home. At the time, she was driving her black 2009 Ford Fusion, which was later recovered in the west side of Columbus. She was reported missing the next day on September 1st, and she appears to be a victim of foul play. So the FBI is offering a reward of up to $10,000 for information leading to the location of Devin Sequoia Cooper. Anyone with information related to the disappearance of Devin Sequoia Cooper is asked to call the Central Ohio Crime Stoppers tip line at 614-461-8477. You may also contact your local FBI office, the nearest American embassy or consulate, or you can submit a tip online at tips.fbi.gov. Mama Mystery. I am your host, Kelly. And I am your co-host, Austin. And I'm back. He's back. I did get one response that said, the episodes are just not the same without you here. And I know I'm boring. I get it. I'm boring. Get out of here. But I appreciate the love. The energy just isn't the same, I think is what the person said. I'm a high energy dude. That is true. So Austin, today we're actually covering a case that you recommended to me. Do you have any idea what it is? I have no clue. <laughs> it's the case of Lauren McCluskey. I have no clue who that is. I well, recommended this? You recommended this story to me. I, I think you sent it to me on Instagram because ESPN did coverage on it. But I'm going to tell you the entire story so you have all the details because... Huh, uh, now I'm real intrigued because I don't know what this is. Well, you'll figure it out. It's going to... It's going to ring some bells and it'll come to you once we get going. Kay. So let's go ahead and dive in. Let's dive into the show. Lauren Jennifer McCluskey was born in Berkeley, California on February 12, 1997 to her parents, Matt and Jill McCluskey. She had a brother named Ryan, and when she was one, her family moved to Pullman, Washington because her parents were both hired as professors at Washington State University. Lauren's mom, Jill, eventually became a Regents professor and director of the School of Economic Sciences at WSU, while Lauren's dad, Matt, became Westinghouse professor of materials sciences, the Department of Physics and Astronomy at WSU. Whew, that's that a dude mouthful. is smart. They both are. Yeah, what do you mean smart. that dude? They're both They're smart. both very smart. Yeah, you're going <laughs> to, girls are going to come for you. If you talk like that, they're both very smart. They're both very smart. According to Lauren's family, Both. Lauren <laughs> Lauren was very smart too. She was bright. All very smart. Sensitive, and she was very active. 
She fearlessly climbed trees and climbed walls. She loved to sing. She was very boisterous. But for as active and confident as she seemed, she was also very sensitive. And she found her confidence when she started playing sports. A natural-born athlete, Lauren was always enticed by a challenge. So when Lauren was eight years old, she entered her first Junior Olympic track meet and set records in high jump, long jump, and the 400-meter run. Damn. It was very clear that Lauren was an exceptional track star. So at age nine, she was told that if she qualified for nationals, she could go. So as Lauren loved a challenge, she qualified for nationals in the nine to 10 age group, and she continued to compete nationally in high jump, hurdles, and multi-events, eventually earning a spot on the USA Track and Field All-American Top 8 19 times. What a beast. Yeah, and setting many USATF Association Association youth records, 12 of which still stand, and the Junior Association record for the heptathlon. What is a heptathlon? I had to look it up too. It's like a... It's more common among, among women, but it's like a series of seven events really? within track and field. Okay. That's how I understand it. Um, so she competed nationally. She made friendships with lots of other athletes, their families and coaches from across the U.S. Mm-hmm. And her friends described her as being incredibly reliable and loyal, just an exceptional girl. Lauren's mom was dedicated to fostering this track career, becoming a track mom to Lauren, and they started traveling all over the country so that Lauren could compete in these track meets. And this one-on-one time that they got to spend together was so special for both of them. Lauren was just a freshman in high school when she became the Washington State High School champion in high jump, and she won second place in the 100-meter hurdles. But during her sophomore year, she pulled her hamstring and she had to recover from that. So she spent the following year training at Spire. Have you ever heard of Spire? Like no, Spire but I'll Academy? tell you what, pulling muscles sucks. Yeah. I used to pull my ham or I used to pull my groin all the time whenever I played basketball when I was younger. And it was like, it sucks. It will take you out. Yeah. Well, she spent the following year training at Spire, which is a sports performance training academy and Um, They also have like an educational boarding school that you can attend for various periods of time while you also train for your specialized sports. So they have like, they have a program for track and field and for basketball and football. I mean, everything. And this is like a specialized academy. You have to be accepted into it. It's a pretty big deal. Um, So while she was there, she also attended the private school, Andrews Osborne Academy in Ohio as well. Then for her senior year of high school, she returned to Pullman And at the 2015 Washington State High School meet, she qualified in four events, scoring in three, helping her team place third overall in the state. She set the Pullman High School record for the 100-meter hurdles. She placed ninth at U.S. Junior Championships for her age group in the heptathlon that year. And not only did she make her coaches proud, she made her teachers proud as well, always offering insightful comments and engaging in classroom discussions and then graduating from Pullman High School with honors and a track and field scholarship to attend the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. So Lauren's awesome. Lauren is awesome. Cool. So while Lauren was in Utah, she competed in multiple events and the high jump, and she made a lot of friends, and she got very close to her coaches, and she really made a name for herself there with her indelible work ethic in everything she did on the track, on the track and off, in the classroom and outside of it, 
And in her limited spare time, she volunteered at the Humane Society, helping to socialize cats so that they could get adopted. And then she also volunteered at the YMCA and the Special Olympics. My goodness. Side note. Mm -hmm. Okay. I just feel like somebody will be able to relate to this listening. Okay. Okay. I think like the movie Lone Survivor. Okay. Okay. It's called Lone Survivor. And you're watching this movie and, you know... I, I didn't put it together, but other people probably would that only one of these soldiers that are fighting survives. Mm-hmm. It's in and the then, name. Yes, yeah, in the name. But I didn't really think of it like that. And then literally throughout the whole thing, you know, Mark Wahlberg's the main character that's the survivor. And so he's Marcus Luttrell and he ends up surviving. Whenever you do these episodes, you name this person. And I think this is something I'll bring up at the end instead. So never mind. <laughs> Okay. Okay. You can delete all that. No, it's okay. We'll just keep it because I I think I know what you're going to say. I just, you name this episode Lauren and you're talking all about her. Mm -hmm. And like, I hate the hype of like, I don't enjoy about these, but it's part of, I I don't enjoy it, but it's part of the episodes with like, you wonder, okay, like, unfortunately I have a feeling this story is going to be something where Lauren is the victim. And I hate that. Mm -hmm. And you know, sometimes you'll have a story where it's this is the person. Typically, I feel like you name them the victim, but sometimes it's like BTK and he's the bad dude. And so throughout the way you write these, my mind is always trying to figure out where this is going. And this Lauren sounds like an awesome person. And unfortunately, my mind right now is going to a negative place with it. So mm-hmm. I know that was just rambling, but. No, I appreciate your input. I do. So um, I'll just continue. Lauren was very strong in her faith as well. She was a proud Christian. She grew up attending Community Congregational United Church of Christ. And in college, she attended Capitol Church in Salt Lake City. And she was also a member of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes at the University of Utah. So, you know, you always hear true crime stories where the storyteller will give you an idea of who the victim was. And you often hear cliche phrases like, they had a smile that lit up a room, or they were loved by all that knew them. Mm -hmm. But that truly was Lauren. She was exceptional, beautiful inside and out, competitive and driven, loyal and reliable, compassionate and sensitive. She loved to have fun and let loose, but also knew when it was time to be serious and be focused. She was also a gifted writer and had a very strong moral compass. So hear me when I say, Losing Lauren was a monumental loss. In the fall of 2018, Lauren was excelling at school, to no one's surprise, with a 3.77 GPA, and she had just applied to graduate the following spring. But then she met Sean Fields. On September 1st of 2018, Sean was working at a bar as a bouncer, and Lauren was out having fun with her friends. Sean caught her eye and she caught his, and the two hit it off and exchanged numbers that night. Sean was 28 and enrolled at the Salt Lake City Community College. He was very charming and charismatic, showering her with affection, gifts, and love, um, which red flag is love bombing. Lauren was smitten with him at first, and they spent a lot of time together, and Lauren slowly but surely began pulling away from her friends a little bit. And when she would hang out with her friends, they picked up on little things that kind of concerned them. Like when they would try to make plans with Lauren, she would casually mention that she'd have to ask Sean first. And if Sean did give her permission, he would dictate what she could or couldn't wear. He gave her pepper spray to protect herself from guys because he just had a feeling no man could be, could be trusted. But then... And Lauren's what, 22, 23 probably? 21. 21. Okay. 
But then he stepped it up a notch and gave her a gun. And when her friends became aware that Sean gave Lauren a gun, they brought their concerns to her coaches and the employees at the housing department for the school. They just all felt like all of this was concerning, especially because Sean and Lauren had only known each other for one month at that point. Mm, yeah, I was literally thinking, you know, if this was your wife and you were out in not in college and everything else, like some of this stuff seems like, oh, yeah, you gave your wife a gun. to, But like this is not that. Yeah, this is not this that. This is extreme. This is extreme. This is controlling. Yeah, and especially when you're like had to ask permission, dictates what she can wear. Mm-hmm. Very controlling. And I mentioned love bombing at first. Do you know what love bombing is? Yeah, yeah. yeah like so, showering people with affection and gifts. and. Yeah, and it's a manipulative tactic that people do to gain control because they shower them with all these gifts to kind of reel them in only to kind of turn on them once they've got them reeled in. Mm-hmm. So it's a tactic that's used. But um, – As I mentioned, they met on September 1st, right? Well, on October 5th, so about a month after they met, Lauren went home to Pullman for for fall break. And there she told her family and friends what was kind of going on with Sean. And she admitted that she had just found his ID and was shocked to learn that Sean Fields was not his real name. His real name was actually Melvin Rowland. And he wasn't 28 years old. He was, in fact, 37. No way. So curious as to why he would lie about those things, she looked up his background and was disturbed to find that he was on a sex offender registry stemming from two charges back in 2004, one for enticing a minor and one for attempting forcible sexual abuse. End it. Yeah. So the very next day, she went back to Salt Lake City to break up with them. And I was hoping you were going to say that because she seems like she's bright. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I want to be very explicit about this timeline now because dates are very important. On October 9th, Lauren was seen meeting Melvin outside of her apartment complex. She allowed him to come inside and the two discussed Lauren's findings. She told her friends and family that Melvin made excuses about his record, saying that this all happened while he was at a frat party and this girl lied about her age and it was all this big misunderstanding. Which if that was the case, not that it not that it would have been okay if he had a relationship with a younger girl. Like if an 18-year-old or 17-year-old wandered into a party and lied about her age and it was like, oh, I accidentally hooked up with a younger girl. You know, if that was the case, mm-hmm. why is he lying about his name, lying about his age? Yeah. Like, obviously, it's not the case. Yeah. Um, now, the truth about that event is actually that Melvin was caught luring a 17-year-old girl online The two met up at her place, and when the girl tried to end the evening because she was tired, he attacked her, raped her, and then after he was finished, told her, you'll never hear from me again, and I won't take anything on my way out. Regardless, Yeah, dirtbag. Regardless of his version of events, though, Lauren still wanted to end things with Melvin. She didn't care what his version of events was. It didn't matter. She was done. The next day on October 10th, Melvin had Lauren's car. I guess he was borrowing it while she was gone. Um, I don't know the details of that, but he was supposed to return it to her that day. Lauren's mom was concerned about Lauren being alone with Melvin when he brought it back. So Lauren's mom, Jill, called the Department of Safety expressing her concerns. The dispatcher then called Lauren and asked her if she was comfortable meeting with Melvin to get the car. And Lauren answered, yeah, I think it's okay. Although she seemed apprehensive when she said it, and I I listened to the call, Um, I don't have it to play for you, but 
It's that's all that there is to it. So just to be safe, the dispatcher offered to have an unmarked police car wait nearby to observe the exchange and just make sure that everything went smoothly. And the exchange went fine. But immediately after Melvin brought the car back, she started getting a barrage of texts from him. On October 12th, she'd had enough of these texts and she called police to report the harassment. Initially, she was getting texts from various numbers saying Melvin was in the hospital and some were even saying that he had died. All of this was likely in an attempt to elicit an emotional response from Lauren in hopes that she would just forgive him for all that stuff that didn't matter because he's if he's dead or dying, then, you know, this trumps all of that, mm -hmm. right? It's very manipulative. But then she got a text from Melvin asking her if she wanted to go to a funeral, his funeral, because he was going to kill himself. Oh, my gosh. Now, she reported all of this to the police. And that same day, October 12th, now remember, she's only known this guy for six weeks she gets a message threatening to release an explicit photo of her and Melvin if she didn't Venmo him $1,000 right then. So she sent the money, but also reported that to the campus police. The next day, Saturday, October 13th, Lauren went to the university police in person to file a report through the school. But when she told them what was going on, she got the feeling that the campus officer, Miguel Darris, was not taking her seriously. And later, it was actually reported that this same campus officer which was allegedly showing his colleagues the explicit photo that Lauren was being blackmailed no with. No way. And essentially just making light of her situation. And this same officer also told Lauren that a detective would be assigned to her case and would be reaching out to her soon. Since she didn't feel like the campus police were really taking her seriously, she went to the city police to tell them about the threat of blackmail as well, just to cover all of her bases. That Friday, October 19th, Melvin could be seen on surveillance cameras walking around the parking lot of Lauren's apartment complex, dressed head to toe in a Deadpool costume. That same day, Lauren called campus police to tell them that she was receiving texts from an unknown number, claiming to know all about the report that she had made. And she was confused by all this because she hadn't received a follow-up call from any detective at that point. But unbeknownst to Lauren, Melvin had her email login information from a time that she had logged into her email at his home once. Of course he did. So it was Melvin reading all of the correspondence and texting her from all these anonymous numbers. Frustrated with the lack of action from the campus police, Lauren called the city police to try and report more of Melvin's harassments, but again, she was redirected to the campus police. <laughs> like, what the fuck? So... Lauren contacted multiple agencies multiple times per day between October 10th and October 19th. Then on October 22nd, in the six o'clock hour of the morning, Melvin borrowed his friend's car, a silver Buick Lancer, and drove to Lauren's apartment complex. At 8.54 that morning, she got a text that read, quote, Good morning, Lauren. This is Deputy Chief McLennan with the University Police. I plan on calling you, but I'm in a meeting at the moment. Can you come to the station as soon as possible? There is something I need you to see. I will go over the detail when we get you here. Thanks. Now, this had multiple misspellings in it. Possible was spelled possingle with a G. Um, 
there's something you need to see. Two was spelled with two O's. So noticing the multiple grammatical and spelling errors, she was apprehensive. So she called the station to confirm that this was actually a message from Chief McLennan, but they confirmed this was not the Chief McLennan's phone number. So she did not go to the station. Instead, she went to her counseling appointment, her scheduled classes, her track and field practice, and then her night class later that day. Meanwhile, at 2.25 p.m. that day, a resident of Lauren's apartment complex could be seen on video letting Melvin into the building. And Melvin could be seen holding a small black bag and then fist bumping the guy who let him in. I don't believe that this guy who let him in had any idea of who Melvin actually was or what he was trying to do. I think he was just trying to help someone who appeared to have forgotten their keys. Mm -hmm. At 8.10 p.m., Melvin was seen leaving the apartment complex just as Lauren was supposed to be getting out of her night class. So as Lauren was walking back to her apartment, she called her mom, and they were just chatting about happy things, having jovial conversation. Lauren was happy. But then her tone changed, and she could be heard through the phone saying, no, 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 before she dropped her phone. Panic. Oh, got the goosebumps. That would be like the most like helpless feeling being on the phone with your daughter for that. Mm-hmm. I can't even, I can't even fathom it. Mm-hmm. Like having kids of my own, I just can't even imagine how helpless. So panicked, Lauren's mom stayed on the phone while Lauren's dad called 911 from their landline. Now, mind you, they are all the way in Pullman, which is about 10 and a half hours away. Talk about a helpless feeling. Mm-hmm. You're on the phone. You just heard something terrible happen. You know she's dealing with this psycho. Mm-hmm. So they're trying to figure out where Lauren might have been when she made that phone call so that they could relay that to police. And suddenly a passerby picks up the phone. And this girl had no idea what was going on. She was just walking. She came upon Lauren's phone, backpack, and her ID. But she was at least able to tell them where she was. So when officers arrived on the scene... Multiple witnesses reported that they heard gunshots and shell casings were found on the ground. And as police scoured the area, students were seen nervously watching from their apartment windows. The university issued an alert to be on the lookout for Melvin Rowland and that the students needed to shelter in place due to a shooting. Then Lauren's own coach, who was assisting in the search, came upon the silver Buick Lancer And inside was Lauren's lifeless body. He had to tell Lauren's parents that she was found and that she was gone. Sorry. Okay, sorry. So they still had to find Melvin. So according to the police report, sorry, this is hard. Mm -hmm. I think this is hard because I see so much of myself. Are you recording right now? Yeah. I just see so much of myself and Lauren and like, Or at least what I'd like to be, you know, like she was a writer. She loved to sing. She loved to challenge. Like you see so much of yourself sometimes when you talk about people, these victims. Different cases. And some, some cases just hit a little harder than others. Mm -hmm. And I think, I just think about what her parents went through having to hear their daughter struggle for her life and then have to learn while they're on the phone, 10 and a half hours away, unable to reach their daughter physically or you know, through the phone. I would, I was, I would, whenever, whenever there's rewind to the beginning, when you said they met each other, you know, and obviously we know, cause this is a true crime podcast where this is going. I sit here and I just think, man, 
you have kids and you love your kids and you send them out into the world and you hope you've prepared them. And these parents obviously did a fantastic job preparing their daughter to have good moral compass and, and be smart and, you know, all of these great things and great attributes of a person. And even this girl, Lauren, ended up stumbling into this situation that, I mean, let's just go ahead and call it unavoidable from the, like, you can sit here and say, oh, well, she didn't have to start dating the guy, whatever. She has a good moral compass. She has good decision-making and processing skills, and she still ended up in this relationship. And she did everything right. right. She asked for help. She asked multiple agencies for help. She turned to her friends. She turned to her family. She had. She, she tried got everything. Potentially blackmailed, and then they, the person was showing the photo. Like, yeah, so it was just like anyone that she was supposed to be able to trust let her down. Mm-hmm. And so it's just crazy. Like I, I get it from the standpoint you're seeing yourself and her in ways, and I'm seeing it from a standpoint of a parent, and it's just, it's just the world is scary. Yeah. That's what Mama Mystery these episodes really tell you, and true crime in general is like, God, there's a lot of wild shit and bad people out there. Yeah, and no matter what you do, sometimes these unavoidable horrible things can happen. Yeah, yeah. things and, happen that you just can't control. Yeah, so now they're looking for Melvin. And according to the police report, the surveillance footage on campus that night showed Lauren walking right up to her apartment building. And just as she was about to scan her key to enter and she's on the phone, Melvin rushed up behind her and grabbed her. And then he's seen carrying her away. And this footage has not been released to the public, thankfully. And then Melvin carried Lauren to that silver Buick, put her in the back seat where he shot her seven times. He then fled on foot and was picked up by a silver Sonata that was driven by a girl he met on a dating app and was scheduled to go on a date with that night. They went to dinner and went back to her place where he showered and hung out before Melvin eventually left. So he's literally, he just killed a girl and then he's acting like. And she, does you think, do you think that she knew she was picking him up from fleeing the scene of killing somebody? No. So this girl she then saw a picture of the man that, you know, university police and police in the, from Salt Lake, they're all looking for him. They're blasting his picture out. And then they also say, like, he he was picked up by a silver Sonata. She's like, wait, I drive a silver Sonata. And so she's putting the pieces together and realized that she just went on a date with this guy. The only thing that was strange to her was that the name and age was different than what this man told her. Oh. So police are now on the hunt for Melvin, who is still on foot. So tell me she comes forward. Oh, yeah. She okay. she went to police. She was terrified. She was terrified. I mean, mm-hmm. she was just with this guy. Hanging out and, with him right after it happened. And she's the one that picked him up. Yes. You better have gone to police. Yeah. She went to police. I mean, this girl, they blurred her image. I won't even say her name. Like, she's an innocent bystander in all of this. But um, anyway, so police are now on on the hunt for Melvin, who was on foot. And by 1 a.m., he was finally spotted and chased on foot into a church. He broke into the church, found a room within the church. Chased on foot by the police? Yeah. Is that not what I said? You just said chased on foot. I did spotted mm. and chased, mm-hmm. so I want to make sure it was the police. Yes, yes, chased by police. He broke into the church, found a room within the church, and shot himself. Oh, what a coward. Yeah. So last week, I covered the story of Pavel LaPere, and I know you weren't here for that episode, but um, basically the story is a 26-year-old entrepreneur from Johns Hopkins University who 
among her many accolades, landed herself on the Forbes 30 under 30 list for her achievements. And she was randomly attacked by a man named Jason Billingsley, who was 32 years old with a violent criminal record. He had served time in prison and was released early, serving only seven years of a 30-year sentence. Three days before he attacked Pava, he also attacked a woman, her boyfriend, and her five-year-old son, raping the woman repeatedly before tying her up and the boyfriend, slitting their throats, and then setting them on fire with the five-year-old in the apartment. Three days went by, and the public knew nothing about this attack. Had the public been made aware, maybe Pava would have been more aware of her surroundings and known not to let this man into the apartment building where she lived and worked. Maybe she would have been more cautious, but we'll never know because the public never knew and neither did Pava. And now Pava is dead from a vicious, violent, and senseless attack from a piece of garbage, waste of space and air. Now, the parallels between these two stories are alarming because Melvin Rowland is no different from Jason Billingsley. And just for the record, I would disown him too if he was my son. I had one review come for me because I said I would oh, yeah. disown him. And I'm just going to double, double down. down. I would disown Melvin also. And I would, I would disown Melvin. <laughs> I don't know how anybody could know that their son is this shitty of a person and not a one-time fluke, one-off thing. like A repeat offender. A repeat offender, shitty person, and... You say, oh, you could, how could you disown your son? Like that review was ridiculous. Anyways. Yeah. Well, they're and not I, listening anymore, I wouldn't imagine. And if you are, you're a fan, so you might as well just go ahead and change your review. <laughs> um, yes. Anyway, well, uh, my, my faith in humanity was restored because a lot of people um, voted on that poll that they would disown their kid too. I think the, there was like 400 votes and only seven said they wouldn't. And I don't know how many, I don't know how many of those seven who said they wouldn't disown their kid were accidental. But the thing is, is that some people, I just want to add this as an aside, but if you disagree with something I say, I am a very open person. I'm open to communication. I'm open to a dialogue. If you approach me with respect, I will, I will deliver it right back to you. I was just going to say, if you are on the other side of that and you disagree with us, I'm not sitting here judging you saying you're a terrible person for it. Yeah. I'm just saying I couldn't, I it's, couldn't do it. I couldn't. But I, that person came at Kelly like, how, you're you're a she told me to disown myself yeah look in the mirror was, like okay well anyway all not to that, give that review too much attention i just think it's worth mentioning though because like we can all glean something from it right like let's be more open-minded and like i would disown a kid anyways yeah well and like that all of that though is just to paint the parallels between Melvin Rowland and Jason Billingsley because Melvin Rowland had a violent criminal history and yet he was still allowed to be a part of society also. And at some point, when do crimes become preventable because we know what these people are capable of? They've proven over time repeatedly what they're capable of. So at what point is the justice system culpable for some of the crimes that occur after someone has already repeatedly made these offenses? Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So uh, just for a list of some of his, his crimes, in March of 2003, a woman filed a police report that Melvin attempted to rape her, but that she was able to fight him off. In January of 2004, another woman filed a restraining order against Melvin while he was out on bail and awaiting trial. That same year... He was charged with those two counts that Lauren found out about, the enticing a minor and forcible sexual abuse. In July of 04, he was sentenced to one to 15 years in prison. 
He was denied parole a couple times before he was released in 2012 after he had admitted to two more rapes. So this is this is crazy. After he was already convicted of some other sexually abusive crimes, he then sat down for an interview with a police officer and admitted to this officer that there were two other women that just he could think of off the top of his head that he knew he raped, that he used his manipulation tactics to get what he wanted. He literally used these words. This is all on an audio recording with a police officer. And yet none of that ever made it to his files. And then he also admitted that he would use those tactics to get what he wanted from at least 50 other women before he got locked up at the age of 22. So all of this is audio recorded. It was given to an officer, this admission. How did the court, his record, or his probation officer never know or hear about this? It was never anywhere. The probation officer was interviewed for the ESPN documentary that they did on this case, which is great. I definitely suggest you go watch it. It's where I got the majority of my information. She had no idea that that recording existed. She literally listened to it during the documentary. How does that happen? Yeah, it's nuts. In October of 2012, he was sent back to prison for failing to attend sex offender therapy, but he was released the following year in 2013. And then in February of 2016, he violated his parole again and was sent back to prison. And then he gets released again in April of 2018. The following month, he received a warning from his probation officer because he had a dating app on his phone, and that was against the rules of his probation. And then in August of 2018, he tested positive for marijuana, but somehow still remained free. So he's obviously not taking any of this seriously. And then he meets Lauren McCloskey on September 1st of 2018. What a crazy timeline. So all of these things could have been found out and dealt with had literally anyone from the University of Utah campus police or the police from Salt Lake City done their job when she was making those phone calls. But instead, they passed the buck back and forth, not taking any of Lauren's concerns or her family's concerns because they were calling as well. Nobody took them seriously. And now Lauren is dead at the hands of a monster this could have been prevented had it not been for the repeated failures of the university and the city of Salt Lake. So in June of 2019, Lauren's parents filed a lawsuit against the University of Utah for failing to protect their daughter despite her repeated pleas for help. And they were suing for $56 million. After two investigations, one being an independent review by the university, which should be a clue as to what's about to come, the president of the university, Ruth Watkins, said, quote, this report does not offer us a reason to believe that this tragedy could have been prevented. Wouldn't it offer a reason to show that it could have been prevented if it was Ruth's daughter? That's a really excellent question. Lauren's parents responded in part by saying, quote, our beloved daughter, Lauren McCluskey, was murdered on the University of Utah campus on her way home to her university apartment after her night class on October 22nd, 2018, by a man she dated for one month and had broken up with 13 days earlier after she discovered he lied about his true identity, age, and criminal record. After talking to the University of Utah police. Lauren repeatedly complained to the University of Utah Police Department about her killer and sought help from them and other entities on campus. And then it goes on to say, failures by staff to provide support and security to Lauren, principally by the UUPD, 
as well as other entities at the university, had fatal consequences. An independent committee reviewed how Lauren's case was handled, and their reports state that there were several indications that Lauren McCluskey was in trouble. There were failings both systematically and individually. Correcting the issues we have identified in this report might lessen the probability of such a tragedy occurring again, end quote. And they wrote in their um, response to the university, we agree with this conclusion. The probability of Lauren's murder would have been lessened had these systematic and individual failings documented in the report not existed. We respectfully disagree with the conclusion that Lauren's murder could not have been prevented, end quote. And the response went on to highlight quotes that Lauren and her mom made to the police about Melvin, saying, I'm worried he's dangerous. He is a sex offender. He is a bad person. And from Jill, I am worried someone is going to hurt her. So in October of 2020, I'm sorry, I'm just thinking about my own daughter and just like, you're, you just, you know, something bad could happen and then it freaking does. And it's like, you've done everything you can to prevent it. It just sucks. In October of 2020, Lauren's parents reached a settlement with the University of Utah for $13.5 million. In their press conference, the president of the university, Ruth Watkins, finally admitted that Lauren's death was in fact preventable by saying, quote, the university acknowledges and deeply regrets that it did not handle Lauren's case as it should have, and that at the time, its employees failed to fully understand and respond appropriately to her situation, end quote. I'm glad she didn't, I'm glad she didn't, what's the words I'm looking for, die on the sword of... That's bad word choice. Yeah, but probably. I still but feel I'm, like it's a cop out. I'm glad, but I'm glad she didn't die on the sword of like we still disagree. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I you were gonna go the other way. You were gonna say that's a I cop was, out. I was because it. I yeah. feel like it's a cop out to say, oh, you know, its employees failed to fully understand. What more did you need? Yeah, I get she that. She called numerous times. She made neuter- numerous reports. Did you need the abuse to happen right in front of your eyes for you to believe that it was happening? Right. Lauren McCluskey did everything right and nothing wrong, and she was failed by this school's bullshit security. Mm -hmm. Sorry, just get worked up because I feel like this whole thing is such a farce to say. It's like such a roundabout way to say uh, say an apology. It's like, I'm sorry you feel that way. I get that. Uh, People who say, say, I'm sorry you feel that way need to really uh, learn what an apology is. Yes. How to say, I'm, I'm sorry. sorry. I did that <laughs> yes. to make you feel that I'm way. I'm sorry. I made you feel that way. Yeah. How about that? I'm sorry. You feel that way is like humorous. Yeah. And I'm sorry that my employees didn't fully understand despite your daughter's repeated calls and reports that she made in person and on the phone. Super sorry that I guess my employees are illiterate and just, I'm going to stop before I say something that's insulting. Okay. So the money from the settlement will go to support the missions of Lauren McCluskey's foundation, which supports campus safety, animal welfare, and amateur athletics, which are all things very near and dear to Lauren's heart. So that's all I have. Man, that was a rough one. I do remember sending you that ESPN story. Yes, you remember now. Once you got into it, yeah. I, I have a kind of a random topic just because it was a topic I had a conversation with a buddy the other day and it made me think of it throughout this. And the okay. reason it made me think of it was because this guy should have been locked up a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And we see that all the time. And this, 
is a strange tie-in, but it's just how my brain works, okay? Okay. You know, okay, the, the world population, do you know how, how much the world population has grown over like the last century? No. Okay, so currently the world population is around 8 billion people. Okay. Okay, just for the sake of conversation here, because I think I'd like listeners' perspective to hear it like this, because the conversation I had with a friend the other day, what do you think the population was 100 years ago in 1920s? Um, 1 billion. It was 2 billion. Oh, okay. So in 100 years, it's 4X'd, okay? Mm -hmm. So at right now, in the last you know few decades, we've been increasing population 80 to 90 million people a year, typically, okay? So the population in 2050, what do you think it's on pace to be? 2050, that's just 30 years from now. It's mm, 8 billion right 8 billion now. now. Let's say 11. It's a good math. Well, oh, so 9.8 billion in 2050, 11.2 billion in 2100 is the estimations. Okay. Okay. We were talking about this for a different reason. We were talking because of housing. Mm-hmm. And like, I'm a big believer that long-term real estate, it can't go down because it, it there's going to be a more and more and more and more demand. And eventually, like we're overpopulating, right? Mm-hmm. But in this instance, it's interesting because there's so much mental health so many mental health issues in this world. Mm-hmm. Where do we go with those people? There's so many issues of people need to be locked up. They aren't being locked up. Where do we go with these people? And like, where what what's going to happen when the population is time and a half or double over the next 50, 75 years? Like, I guess my fear and my point of bringing it up is more and more crime and dirt bags and things like this are going to happen. And it's just scary to think about. Right. It's kind of a pessimistic outlook on things in one regard, but it's... It's realistic, though. It's realistic. And we've already seen it happening because these jails are overpopulated. And some of it is for crimes that are, like, comparable to a misdemeanor. They're for, like... We were selling weed. Yeah, for, when weed's legal now, and now weed is legal, so it's yeah. You it's like there, there's people who are locked up for small for offenses nonsense. for very long sentences, and then you have people who are locked up for very short sentences for very violent crimes. And it doesn't make any sense. Well, Nothing then, about it makes much sense. Yeah, and then even like on a local level where we live, and I'm sure where everybody else lives, listening to this too. How often do you hear about people that like they got caught stealing a vehicle, and somebody goes. Oh, yeah. Somebody in the system or somebody who knows this person goes, oh, yeah, they've been caught like six times, but they don't prosecute them. And they just keep letting them go. Or whether it's this Melvin guy on complete violent crime or sexual crime, oh, they just let him go. We don't prosecute people. And are, are we not prosecuting because we just have shitty systems and or we don't have anywhere to put these people? I don't know. It's just kind of like this thing I wanted to put out there about like the population is way overkill and it and it's just crazy. Yeah. So. Yeah. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how to fix it. I mean, there's there's yeah, a lot of it. sad things going on in the world right now. I feel like this is just a drop in the bucket. Yeah. That's a really pessimistic way to end this episode. Can we end on a lighter note at all? Do you have anything? We need to do a CrimeCon recap because CrimeCon <sighs> was awesome. CrimeCon was amazing. I can't wait for Nashville. If you have any interest in going to CrimeCon, please hear me when I say it is worth every penny to go to CrimeCon. Um, CrimeCon in Nashville is going to be May 31st to June 2nd of next year. So just in like six months or so, if you're interested in going, um, wait until I'm accepted onto podcast row so I can give you my discount code. There you go. Um, but you can also suggest, I guess that you want me there. I don't know how that all works. I'm probably going to get there there anyways. What's matter? Yeah. It doesn't really matter. doesn't matter. Mama. Okay. Mystery. Exhausted. (laughs) Bye.